So the other day, I found myself walking through the produce section at Wegmans Grocery, and I saw this particularly striking eggplant <laughs> that was, you know, mottled and streaked with those deep purples and creams. Now, I don't particularly like eggplant, but this one was really beautiful. It was richly colored and wonderfully shaped. And as I passed by this eggplant, I started humming the song we just sang, Beauty in the World. And I have to confess, right there in front of the cabbage, I did have to shake my booty. <laughs> just a little bit. And it made me smile. And it lifted me from the drudgery of the weekly grocery run and reminded me about how much fun life can be when I take the time to notice something beautiful, connect it to the world somehow, and by so, do, by so doing, connect myself to the world. And so there I was, between the apples and the potatoes, having this deeply spiritual experience that was co-created by me, an eggplant, and a song. And I think that's what this message series, Songs of the Spirit, is really all about. It's how we might express, how we connect our spiritual lives into our everyday life. Not just about getting religion on Sunday morning. But how does it show up on Monday? How do we express the energy that charges us up here into the world? I chose the song Beauty in the World today not because of the eggplant, but more because I think that we are co-creators of the abundant beauty that we see in the world around us every day. It starts with, as the song goes, noticing the beauty around. But you know, I think there are ways that we can transform our lives by actively participating in that act of co-creation. So prior to embarking on this path to ministry, I was an architect. And um, back in school, my undergraduate years, 20-ish years ago, um, and I was neck deep in the education and training for that work, um, the profession at that time was still pretty much white guys. Sure, there were more women and people of color that were starting to show up in the studios and, and, you know, come forward 20 years, and I think the profession has really changed, and it's been for the better. But at the time, it was really pretty much white, male, more or less privileged. And um, at that time, that education meant spending many, many, many hours in a university studio you know, the proverbial ivory tower where we learn to design ivory towers. <laughs> so you can imagine that as architecture students, one of the topics of discussion that would come up quite often was beauty. And we had an architecture professor that insisted that for something beautiful, above all other attributes, it had to have a clear order and a defined structure. And you know, at the time, I liked that idea, but my ideas have been kind of evolving. And I recently ran across images by a Swiss artist named Ursus Werley, whose work pokes fun at our attempts to constrain beauty in such rational terms. And he calls it tidying up. 
So in this case, he's taken our, our pine branch and he's very neatly given it a nice structure <laughs> and order. So in any case, my understanding of beauty has and continues to evolve perhaps past the structure and order move, which is why I've recently become intrigued by another definition of beauty. This one comes from a man by the name of Alfred North Whitehead. Some of you may have heard of him. Maybe you have not, and you're lucky. (laughs) Alfred North Whitehead was a mathematician and philosopher of the early 20th century and one of the fathers of a rich and complex philosophical school of thought called process relational theology. Whitehead sees beauty as the coming together of the most intensely contrasting things to create something new. Beauty as the coming together of the most intensely contrasting things to create something new. And I think this image of the flower coming through this crack in the pavement kind of gives some visual to that idea. The most intensely contrasting things coming together to create something new. There is a line of critical thinking that philosophers and theologians, Whitehead being one of them, have wrestled with, which is called the is-ought question. It's kind of confusing. Is and ought, right? And this is the question of how do we understand the world as it is versus how we understand or can imagine the world as it ought to be. How do we, how do we hold these two things at the same time? And how do we make this bridge? Philosophers and theologians aren't really the only ones who ever deal with this question. In fact, I believe that we all deal with this question every day of our lives. Macy Gray's song we just sang points to this. She says, I know you're fed up. Life don't let up for us. All they talk about is what's going down, what's been messed up for us. That's talking about the way the world is or one way the world is. And you know, it's easy to get stuck there, right? It's easy to get stuck in the is of the world, or at least the is of the world that drags us down into fear and suspicion, and sometimes even violence. And we can take the case, this recent case, this high-profile case of Trayvon Martin's death. In that story, we find a very clear disconnect between the way the world is a world where a young black man in a hoodie is viewed as suspicious and dangerous and where a young white man fears for his safety so much that he patrols his neighborhood armed with a 9mm pistol. And we contrast that with the way many of us perhaps think the world ought to be. That is, a world where a young black man in a hoodie is not considered a threat to anyone and a young white man is not afraid for his safety so much that he ever thinks to pick up a weapon. So what Whitehead is suggesting to us is that when we bring together intensely contrasting things, beauty is what emerges, and that beauty forms the bridge between the is and the ought, a way to connect the world of is and the world of ought. So into that landscape of the architectural profession that I talked about earlier, I want to introduce you to a man named uh, Samuel Mockby. He was a professor of architecture at Auburn University. And he has this radical idea 
to take privileged architecture students out of their ivory tower and place them in the middle of Hale County, Alabama. Now, Hale County, Alabama is one of the poorest counties in Alabama, and then by extension, one of the most impoverished in our country. And then he's going to have his students design and build houses and civic structures for the rural, mostly African-American and impoverished clients, real people with real and very worthy lives. And it was an experiment in bringing together these two intense contrasts, the privileged students and the impoverished residents of Hale County, in an attempt to transform both the residents and the students And this experiment would be called the Rural Studio. One of the early projects completed by the Rural Studio was a home for Anderson and Oralee Harris. When Mockby first approached Harris and offered to have his students build him and his wife a new home, Harris was living in a single-room shack with no plumbing and no electricity. And this is 1995. But Harris actually turned him down, saying, no, I don't think I'll take one of those today, as Mockley puts it, as if we were selling a Manway. (laughs) And Sam Mockley assumed that Harris was apprehensive because of the obvious distrust he must have learned historically of big white men from Mississippi coming in to try and give something away. You can well imagine that it's to see such offers probably never turned out very well for Mr. Harris. But it's interesting because Anderson Harris objects to that, con, uh, to that characterization, saying, I wasn't afraid of no white man. I didn't have nothing, and I was afraid they'd take what I did have. Then Harris's response to that, I'm reminded that we all assume we're working from the same map, that we all have that same worldview. I mean, come on, who wouldn't want a free house? Particularly, why wouldn't an elderly African-American man who by his own admission had nothing not want a free house? You know, despite that encounter, Mockby's students really wanted to work with the Harris family. And they were able to cajole him and convince him into letting them work with him and do this house. And once he did, he really relished the design process and spent much of his time helping the students and cooking meals for them. So here we have the coming together of these intense contrasts, both social and cultural, and beauty was created. And this is what they designed for him. They call it the butterfly house, emerging from these contrasts. But, you know, I think the beauty of the architecture is really just symbolic. It's symbolic of a transformation of all of those involved in this project. But, you know, to get to that transformation, we have to acknowledge the risks that Harris and the Rural Studio students had to take. Anderson Harris had to risk the vulnerability of his own poverty. I didn't have nothing, and I didn't want them to take what I did have. He had to risk that vulnerability of his dignity, of his self-sufficiency. The Rural Studio students also had to take a risk, right? They had to risk engaging with Harris' family with an openness to be changed by the process. It would have really been easy to come into Hale County as the privileged class and offer solutions 
to all the problems of poverty, race, class, and cultural difference. You know, with the, we know what's wrong, let us fix it, step aside. But that's not what they did. They risked their own worldview by engaging with that intensely contrasting one. And instead of bringing their preconceived ideas of what life was like for Anderson Harris, they engaged him in conversation that I believe changed them all. And beauty emerged, not simply the beauty of the butterfly house, but a deeper beauty that connected the way the world is with the way the world ought to be. So then I was thinking, you know, how might that work in the case of Trayvon Martin? Where can we create beauty there? Now, to be sure, finding the contrasting elements in that story isn't really hard to do. There are plenty of people who are resigned to the way the world is, and that is a world where the death of Trayvon Martin is a tragic example of the isness of the world. It's just the way it is. And there are those who are outraged. Outraged because they imagine, even demand a view of the way the world ought to be. Free from the fear and the violence that led to Trayvon's death. So to create the beauty as I've been talking about today, as I think Whitehead was talking about what it would mean would be bringing together these two intense contrasts, these people with intensely contrasting views, and engage in a process of dialogue and understanding. And that sounds really great, right? There's the catch. There's always a catch, right? And the catch here is for that beauty, for that transformation to occur. Those that engage in the process must be willing to risk their own vulnerability. It's not going to work if the dialogue becomes about proving my point, convincing the other of the rightness of my position, of somehow winning. To engage in this work, people must be involved, must be willing to be profoundly changed by the encounter. They have to be willing not to know what the results will be and to intentionally let them unfold. And this is tough. This is tough work. This is even countercultural work. But I believe deep in my soul that this is possible. This is really possible for all of us. Beauty can be created by all of those touched in this case. But you know what? Here's the thing. We don't live in Sanford, Florida. And we don't live in Hale County. We live here in our lives. So how does it work here? How does this co-creation of beauty in bringing together the intense contrast work for us? So I'll share a story with you. Many of you have heard this story before because uh, Reverend Ken has told it a couple of times which is really unfair because it's my story. (laughs) So, so the story is many years ago, I was, I was picking up my daughter, Grace from preschool and she was about two or three at the time and we had gotten home and I got her out of the car and, 
And, um, and then I bounded up the stairs to the back door and was unlocking the door because, you know, I had things to do. There were things to do that day. There was a lot of, I had stuff to do. I don't remember what it was, but there was clearly stuff to do. So I unlocked the door and I opened the door and I turned to let her in and she's not there. She's over here, down the stairs on the sidewalk. And she is sitting down there on the sidewalk and she's got, she's got her blankie in one hand and her thumb in her mouth. And she's pointing at something with a stick. Her eyes are transfixed on the sidewalk in front of her. Come on, Grace. We gotta go. Come on, I gotta go. You gotta get inside. Come on. And she didn't move. She just sits there staring at the sidewalk. Getting a little frustrated, right? Come on, Grace. Let's go. We, I, I got, we gotta go. Come on. Get inside. Grace, come on. And she doesn't. She's sitting here. She kind of cocks her head to the side. I think she hears me. But I don't know, because her eyes have not left that sidewalk. I'm over here. I'm, oh, Grace, come on. Let's go inside now. And then I realize, just in that moment, I realize this is one of those moments, right? This is one of those moments where I, as the adult, am trying to enforce my power and privilege as the dad over my daughter. And rather than finding myself engaged with my daughter with whatever she was staring at at the ground, I was over here yelling. And so I walked back down the steps. And I got down, and she kind of curls up into my lap, but her eyes never left the sidewalk. And I'm looking, and I don't see anything. <laughs> it's just a sidewalk. And so I whisper, I'm like, hey, Grace, what do you see? And she takes the stick, and she kind of points. And there's an ant, about two millimeters long, right? ant and there's a crust of bread about five times its size and that ant is pushing that crust of bread and then it crawls up over it and it grabs it and it's dragging this crust of bread and then it tries to crawl under it and move that crust of bread forward and it's fascinating and it's amazing and I'm staring at this ant and Grace and I are sitting here on the sidewalk and we're watching this ant. And we watch this excruciating <laughs> scene as this ant slowly drags and pushes and pulls and cajoles that crust of bread to the edge of the sidewalk and then drops off into the grass. Grace stands up, walks up the stairs to the door, and I'm sitting there. I have no idea what to say, no idea what to do. And Grace gets to the stop of the stairs and says, Come on, Daddy! <laughs> and you know what? And you know what? I would have missed it. I would have missed it. If I had stood there at the top of the stairs holding on to the power and privilege of being the adult, 
of all the things I had to do, I would have missed it. I would have missed the beauty of that ant. I would have missed the beauty of quietly sitting with my daughter in my lap on a warm fall afternoon. I would have missed it if I had not risked my own vulnerability, my desires to not look foolish. In that moment, the ant and that crust of bread and grace and I, we were co-creators. Co-creators of the beauty of this world. Suspended in that place between the way the world is and the way the world ought to be. So I think this is what is available, what is possible for us. We are co-creators of the beauty in this world. I know you're fed up. Life don't let up for us. All they talk about is what's going down, what's been messed up for us. But you know, when we notice the blue skies, when we notice the butterflies, when we notice each other, when we do stop, and smell the flowers. We become the co-creators of that beauty. It is present and is possible for all of us today, right now. And when we find it and when we create it, there lies joy. Joy. And in that joy, there's really very little else to do than, yeah, to shake our booties. Lose it in that sweet music. Come and dance with me. Maybe so. And amen. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Creative spirit that dwells within us all, we are grateful for the beauty of this day. We are grateful to be co-creators of that beauty, to look into one another's eyes, to touch one another's hands, to see ourselves in this world, beautiful, stunning, gorgeous. May we find the contrasts in our lives and bring them together to create beauty and dance. Amen.